Welcome to the conversation from St. Patrick's Studio. My name is Brian Cannon, and I'm joined today by Father Bart Giger from the Society of Jesus, a Jesuit. He's a research scholar. You can say that. That's hard to say. Research <laughs> scholar and a professor <laughs> at Boston College. He entered the Jesuits back in 1990, and he has a doctorate from let me take a breath here. Universidad Pontificia Comillas in Madrid. I'm sure I said that perfectly. And he's done everything from being a rector to an editor to a translator. So Father Bart, welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. How is life in the Society of Jesus these days? Thank you, Brian. I'm very glad to be here. And at the moment, I am living in a large Jesuit community at Boston College, filled with young Jesuits from around the world who are studying theology and preparation for priesthood. And it is so, it's such a gratifying thing for me and such an honor for me to be able to live with them. And theoretically, I'm supposed to be a good spiritual influence on them as one of the spiritual fathers. Now, whether that's accurate or not, you'll have to ask them. But to visit, to just experience their enthusiasm in their different cultures has been a real treasure for me. What do they bring into the table these days, these young Jesuit guys? What are you, uh, what are you encountering in them? Oh, wow. Uh, well, there is a tremendous desire to work with young people in terms of helping them to recover a real deep sense of the faith and an appreciation for the faith. And especially helping people, you know, as you know, these are very polarized times, very marginalized times. Uh, there is a tremendous interest among our younger Jesuits in terms of trying to affect reconciliation in different ways, reaching out to Catholics at the margin or just people on the fringes of faith in general. And, and trying to open up that dialogue and that sense of welcome. That's awesome. So I, just so everybody knows, we are gonna get to beards, okay? We already discussed this in the pre-show. <laughs> we are gonna talk about beards um, because I know that it's uh, near and dear to uh, both of our hearts, but we're gonna hit the heavy hitting stuff first. So Father Bart, what do you what do you make of the fracturedness in society and um, and how maybe discernment can, can help us out there because I think a lot of the division that we experience in society today is because of competing understandings of the truth. So um, I know that Ignatian's, in the, uh, Saint Ignatius of Loyola did not invent discernment. It's a biblical thing, but he certainly refined it. So talk a little bit about what Ignatian spirituality has to offer in such a fractured time as ours. Absolutely. You know, uh, I think everyone generally agrees that one of the big contributors to the polarization that we experience today is social media in general uh, and the Internet, because what it does for better and for worse, you know, the Internet is a tremendous blessing in so many ways. Uh, and yet, like everything else, it can be a mixed blessing. And what happens is that what we might call fringe ideas or unlikely ideas, uh, people who share those same ideas can come together and kind of accumulate a, um, a what do you want to call, critical mass, if you will, uh, that by virtue of their size becomes more and more compelling for other people. I was giving a homily on this the other day. You know, uh, there, to give you one concrete example, uh, there are a lot of Catholics uh, who are kind of forwarding this idea that it's immoral to receive the vaccine for the coronavirus because it was created with aborted st uh, stem cells of fetuses. Um, and uh, I sent a, I contacted someone about this and I said, you know, 
the bishop, U.S. Bishops Conference sent out a, an official declaration saying it was permissible for Catholics to receive this vaccine. And her response was, well, they've been duped, okay? And then I said, well, you know, there's all these pro-life research institutions around the world staffed with professional scientists, like the Charlotte Lozier Institute in Arlington, who have researched this thoroughly and said, it's okay from a Catholic moral perspective to receive these vaccines. Well, she kind of dismissed that too. And I said to her, well, okay, now look at what's going on here. You won't listen to this source over here, you know, our bishops, and you won't listen to these sources over here but you are choosing to put a great deal of weight on this video on YouTube that you've listened to that just anybody could have posted, right? And so what it does is it raises the question in a way that we've never had to face before in history, I think, in the 21st century, is that we have to make a choice who we're going to listen to, all right? When we have all these different competing ideas and theories, in a way that our ancestors never had that kind of plurality coming at them. Uh, now more than ever, we've got to make a conscious decision, who am I going to listen to? And on what basis do I choose to listen to this source? And that's where the discernment of spirits comes in. That's the, the, the whole practice of the discernment of spirits is trying to determine which uh, ideas and thoughts and emotions that we're experiencing from the inside or that are coming from without, whether these are God speaking to us or they're just our own human thinking, if you will, or if this is the enemy trying to confuse us. Everybody now has the spectacle of John the Baptist. So I think a lot of people went out to initially encounter John the Baptist. There's this guy out in the desert right? And he's doing some kind of strange things. And, and, and let's go see. <laughs> let's go mm -hmm. see that. Well, now everybody has that platform, but not everybody has that authority with which John spoke, right? So, okay. so when you're deciding what, what it is that you're going to listen to, it can't be on the basis of what's well presented or what's flashy or what's eye-catching because everybody now has the ability to do that, but not everybody has the authority to back it up. So how do, how do you start that decision-making process of who is it that I'm listening to versus who I'm not? Because it can't be based on appearances. Exactly. Well, a couple of things that you mentioned, I think are relevant in terms of the appearance. You said it can be flashy. You're absolutely right. Uh, when I was engaging people about this issue, about the morality of the vaccine, uh, one of them said, well, this video that I've looked at on YouTube, it's so scientific. You know, it's got this supposed researcher making all these scientific claims. And she said, it's so scientific. And I said, with all due respect, how do you know that? You're not a scientist and I'm not either, right? Now it might look scientific, but do we really have the background and education to be able to assess that for ourselves? And I use the comparison of Star Trek. I say this as a big Star Trek geek, right? If you watch a Star Trek movie, it certainly sounds very scientific, all the things the characters are saying. But of course, most physicists, you know, physicists are going to tell you it's all gibberish, right? For the most part, you know. Um, and so the first humility, if we are going to practice discernment of spirits well, the absolute first and fundamental virtue is humility. We need to be able to admit to ourselves, do I really have the capacity in this particular context to assess what's being said here? 
the, the content of what's being said, okay? Or do I need to turn to uh, experts who I trust to help me make sense of that content, all right? Um, the second thing you mentioned was authority. And we talk about authority in one of two ways. Authority can be given from above, so to speak. It's not, a person doesn't necessarily earn it per se, uh, or it's not because the person is virtuous per se, but because it was given from above. So for example, uh, you know, the Lord gives St. Paul a divine commission to go to preach the gospel. And so Paul speaks with the authority of God. And it doesn't matter whether people like Paul or not, or trust him or not, the fact remains he's an authority from God in that objective sense, okay? But we also talk about authorities in the sense of people who are very learned, all right? So like Carl Sagan would have been an authority on astrology, okay? Uh, and so uh, in that kind of a situation, you know, Jesus said that the first rule for the discernment of spirits, because again, this idea goes back to the Bible, right? The first and foremost rule for the discernment of spirits is by, your by their fruit, you shall know them, okay? So if you want to know whether the tree is good, whether the tree is speaking truth, if you will, you look at the, you look at the fruit, okay? And so in the case of scientists, for example, I don't have the intellectual capacity to assess on its own terms, the kinds of things that I that they claim. But I look at the fruit, I see these marvelous innovations in technology and science revolutions. I see the fruit that they're producing. And so clearly there's a truth there that needs to be respected, that these people know what they're doing and I have to honor that and respect it, okay? Um, and so in the case of John the Baptist, what do you remember? The gospels are very clear. What was the fruit that he was producing. How do we know he wasn't just some kind of eccentric, you know, out there, uh, which he certainly looked like one, right? So, but the gospels are very clear that everybody was coming to him and repenting for their sins, even pagan, even the Romans, you know, people who were not Jewish, uh, even people who would ordinarily would have been enemies of John the Baptist, the Sadducees and things like that, were coming out there and experiencing compunction and repentance. So by that good fruit that you're seeing, you know that the tree of John the Baptist was good. And I think the the point on humility you make is key because a, a, a big part of discernment for me, and I'm working on being a disciple too, is, is being willing to change, right? Be, so I, I take in expertise or knowledge or, or, and we have basically universal access to knowledge now, which we have, we have sub substituted for expertise, I think. And I think that's part of the problem, but part of my willingness to change based on what I hear and based on what I encounter from this, right? So, so how do, so humility being key, how is that developed in a disciple? How can we work on being humble? Okay. Well, Humility is one of the most misunderstood of all the Christian virtues, okay? And uh, and again, this was a very important virtue for St. Ignatius as well, precisely because he was so interested in the discernment of spirits. What Christians tend to think that humility means is that we make ourselves out to be a nobody. We pretend to be nobody special, right? Uh, we try not to stand out from the crowd, so to speak, or to ruffle feathers. And that's not what it means. True Christian humility, it comes from the Latin humus, uh, uh, earth or soil. It means acknowledging that we are creatures of God, 
with all of our limitations, but also with whatever gifts that God has given us. Okay. And so if we pretend that we do not have gifts that we really do, okay, that God has given us, then we are, that is also, that's called false humility, or if you want to get technical, pusillanimity. Okay. Um, and so true humility is a middle ground between two bad extremes. Uh, uh, pride on the one hand, where you pretend to be more than you are, or claim to deserve everything that you have. And false humility is when you pretend to be someone you're not, you know, uh, if you fail to step up in certain situations. Okay. So the example I like to use, Brian, is I use this with my students all the time. Imagine the submarine captain and all the sailors come up to him, the ship is submerged, and they say, Captain, Captain, the uh, enemy ship has launched torpedoes on us. Tell us what to do. Do we return fire, take evasive action, submerge, uh, you know, whatever, uh, ascend? Now, imagine the captain said, well, who am I to think that in a life and death situation like this, that I should have to make this decision that affects all of you? Let's have a group conversation, a group hug, and let's talk about this, all right? Well, that might sound like humility, but it's actually false humility because the reality is that he is different from everyone else on that ship. He has been given a responsibility to make life and death decisions by the United States Congress, right? And so if he pretends that he doesn't have that duty and that authority when he does, then he's guilty of a great sin, right? And he's putting the lives of those sailors at risk. What he needs to do in that situation is to step up and own the fact that he's different. And that would be true Christian humility. Now in a different context, it might be perfectly legitimate for him to have a group conversation about a decision and that would be fine. But so humility is also determined by the context, all right? Um, and so the first step toward true humility, I think the tradition would say, is simply an honest assessment of yourself the courage to be transparent with yourself, okay? Well, going back to that idea we talked about earlier, honesty with yourself, and an honest assessment of what are my limitations and what are the gifts and strengths that I bring to the table that God has given me. And usually we need the input of other people, friends and family whom we trust to help us assess that because usually other people know us better than we know ourselves very often. <laughs> The honest assessment of self. Mm -hmm, exactly. That's not easy. What? This is supposed to be easy. It, uh, this, and this is St. Paul that you're describing, right? Could you, so being honest about who you are, he's like, I'm not a great preacher. <laughs> you know, exactly. I'm not much to look at here. Exactly. Um, and, and if he were to buy into the false humility, he would say, you know what? I persecuted the church. Let me just, uh, let me just go to my little corner and, exactly. and not exactly. be who God has created me to be. And, and of course, our, the exemplar of humility is Jesus, who right. also claims to be the son of God, right? right. So, but those things are not held in tension in him because it's true. So the That's honest right. assessment of self contains not only our shortcomings when being honest about those, but also our giftedness as you, as you drew out. So, so let's talk about those young Jesuits that you work with. Mm -hmm. What are, what are their giftedness? What do they have to offer? What do you see in them? You, you say sometimes it's like somebody else has to see it in you. What do you right. see in them? Oh, that's, you know, it's what I find, you know, in these men that I live with, very often that they have gifts that they themselves are not aware of. 
Okay. And what I try to do sometimes is draw their attention to those because, you know, God gave them those gifts for a reason and he wants those to be used. Uh, very often young Jesuits, like anybody who are idealistic and they want to serve the Lord with all of their hearts, they can be very, a lot of self-doubt, a lot of insecurity. Is this really the vocation for me? Um, and so trying to encourage them by showing them their gifts is so important. And it could be anything really. Um, I notice in, you know, some men just it's in their bones, that deep love for the poor and the desire to, to be there for them and to enter in their reality. For others, it's a desire for social justice. For others, other Jesuits are just natural communicators and great preachers. And I always try to, when I hear a good homily from a Jesuit or any other preacher, I always try to let them know that, you know, because preachers need to know that they're making an impact on people's lives, right? And so, yeah, just trying to encourage them on whatever their individual gifts may be. And um, very often it comes as a surprise to someone to hear that because they didn't realize that they were making that kind of impact. I've been very blessed uh, in the last year. I don't know if it's because of the pandemic or what, if people have more free time on their hands, but I've had three or four people contact me whom I haven't seen in 10, 15, 20 years who said, Father Bard, I just want you to know a homily you gave 20 years ago has really stuck with me. Well, Brian, that's the most amazing thing in the world to hear something like that, you know, and uh, one of those once a year will keep me going. It's enough to keep me going. <laughs> oh, it totally fills the tank. Yeah, no, I, I, I did nine years in youth ministry and yeah, I do say it like a prison sentence, but it was, it was awesome. And last week, one of my former kids dropped me a note mm -hmm. just one of those affirmation things uh, out of the blue, you know, you're, that's enough to fill your tank because sometimes, um, and, and I think in the realm of Ignatian spirituality, you think of the examine and you think of things that are like very personal and very okay. introspective and, and solitary in a way. And sometimes we don't recognize that the discernment process is not a solitary process. It's exactly. a, it's a communal process process so to really empower people to call out the good in the other That's and right. and maybe apply that to somebody with whom mm -hmm. you might have differences in in some way too and the reconciliation that can happen when you call out the good in the other um and you mentioned the jesuit vocation one of the things that um, i'm really intrigued about in your bio is this uh, this translating of a man's manuscript of a guy <laughs> of a guy who died in 1611 you That's know right. That's <laughs> about the about perseverance right in the jesuit vocation what's what's that all about what are you working on there? oh this is <laughs> okay so father pedro riba de nera was an early jesuit he knew ignatius personally and a brilliant intellect and one of the great writers of the spanish golden age and he wrote a very obscure little book that has never been critically edited or published in any language uh, and so I'm kind of I kind of discovered this book. Well, I didn't discover it per se, but refound it in the archives and blew the dust off it. Um, and I've been translating it. Wait a minute, I got to stop you. Found it in the archives. Right. Do Jesuits have like this Hogwarts style room <laughs> of like Jedi manuscripts that are like dusted. Oh. Do you have a? Are there torches? No. <laughs> 
Well, yes and no. In Rome, the, the society's headquarters in Rome, we do have a massive archives where we keep a lot of the original texts written by Ignatius and early Jesuits and things like that. However, many, many texts that were written by early Jesuits are spread throughout libraries around the world. So for example, this particular text that I'm translating, manuscript copies of it were made, and you'll find a copy at the National Library in Madrid, for example, or another copy in Paris, like Parisian libraries, things like that. Pardon me. So what I've done is I've gone to, I've collected three or four of those different editions, and I'm creating a translation from that. But yes, yeah, sometimes there is the uh, torch, yes. <laughs> so how does it translate? What are you finding? Well, it's, you know, the thing is, uh, I am fascinated about the idea of perseverance and a commitment, whether we're talking about, you know, commitment in a married vocation or priestly or religious, whatever it might be. What are the psychological and emotional dynamics and the challenges that go into a long-term commitment, right? And so for me personally, that has always meant something. And so when I discovered that what Reba de Nera, what many people don't realize, including many Jesuits, is that when St. Ignatius Loyola and his friends created the Jesuit order, the image of religious life, the, the image of the Jesuits, the, the kind of religious life that they were living was so radical and so unique that many Jesuits believed that it was, they weren't sure that they would be able to save their souls if they became Jesuits, right? They thought that they would more likely save their souls if they became Franciscans or Dominicans or something like that. And so, uh, the Jesuits had some problems recruiting men sometimes for that reason, and a tremendous number of men were leaving the Society of Jesus because they, they would get skittish after a while, okay? Uh, back in those days, in the, in the 1500s, Catholics generally believed that if you really want to become holy and save your soul, you have to spend four, five, six hours a day in prayer, okay? Um, and most religious orders at that time would have focused on a considerable amount of prayer. But Ignatius really wanted Jesuits working out there in the field and actually minimized their prayer to about an hour a day. Uh, and that actually scandalized many people at the time, right? So that's one of the reasons why this was so controversial. But these hundreds and hundreds of men that are leaving this brand new religious order, you can imagine how demoralizing that would have been and confusing for the guys who stay, you know, and they're maybe thinking, am I a rat on a sinking ship here? Or, you know, why should I be staying? You know, that kind of a thing. And so Reba Denera gave a homily to young Jesuits. He said mass at one of our Jesuit high schools in Spain 500 years ago. And he's talking to them and he's trying to console them about this reality. Uh, and afterwards, again, that whole homily idea, they came up to him afterwards and said, Father Reba De Nero, that was very good. You should make a book out of that. <laughs> so he did. He made a whole book out of it. Um, and in which he's trying to, he tells the stories of real men who left and why. And it's a fictional dialogue between three young Jesuits who are on vacation. And they're kind of telling their stories about these men who left. And they're kind of struggling with the spiritual implications of it. What does it mean for us? And Brian, what I find so fascinating is that it's the same kind of conversations that any of us would have today. You know, the 500 years pass, they're talking about the same stuff, you know. Um, and so one going back to the discernment of spirits, one reason why I find this is important, I like to remind Jesuits about this, is one of the great temptations from the enemy 
is to romanticize the past or romanticize the future, okay? There's an old joke in the church that conservatives romanticize the past and they wanna go back to the glory days of the past and liberals romanticize the future. Everything will be great if we get to this ideal future, right? And the great spiritual masters have said over and over again, that's a temptation. We need to live in the present. There was, there were no glory days in one sense and there never will be. Every age in the church has had its scandals and its difficulties and it always will, you know? And so living in that present moment. And so there's a temptation among Jesuits today. Sometimes they can think just like any religious order I think would, oh, we've fallen so far short of the holiness of our first founders. You know, we don't cut the mustard that they did. And that's, that seems like a holy thought, but the discernment of spirits would say that's the enemy messing with you, okay? I would argue that in every way that counts, we're just as holy today as our founders were 500 years ago. Man, can you, can you, apply that a little bit to where we find ourselves in the midst of pandemic too? Because sometimes I, I play this little mental game of year to date. What was I doing a year ago, two right. years ago? And, and a lot of people are, when are we going to get back to right. the way that things were before? Or if we could just get to right. where we're going and, and then things will be a lot better. If we, And I just, that's just what the way I translated it in my mind. Right. what we're going through right now, but the gift of the present moment. Can you apply some of what you're learning from right. the text to what we're going through? Well, it's funny you mention that because instead of turning to Ignatius, I'd like to mention C.S. Lewis for a minute, who actually responded to this question, okay? Um, and I, I can't claim credit for this. This actually was a fantastic article in America Magazine, which came out, I think, in November of last year, of 2020, if I remember correctly. Um, and you remember, so C.S. Lewis is a professor at Oxford University. He's teaching the classics. And it's shortly before the, uh, the Second World War has begun for the British, but not yet for the Americans. And his students at Oxford are saying, why should we be studying? Why should we be studying philosophy and theology in the classics as if life were normal right now? Isn't this a waste of time? Shouldn't we put all these normal things on hold? until we go back to normal life again in the future, okay? Uh, and C.S. Lewis's response was, what is happening right now, the war with the Germans, is just as normal as anything else, okay? All time periods in life are normal life, okay? In the sense that what he said about the war is the same thing that we would say today about the pandemic. The pandemic is not a break from real life. All the pandemic does is take certain truths that are always true, but maybe we kind of hold them in the back of our minds. We don't really look at them squarely. And the pandemic takes those truths and then holds them right there in front of our face so that we can no longer deny them, okay? And so in that sense, uh, it brings greater clarity to the reality of our lives. So for example, you know, I tell people, if you're lonely during the pandemic, you were probably lonely before the pandemic, okay? You can run around a lot and kind of distract yourself from the realization that you're lonely. But if you're sequestered in your room, then you really feel that you're forced to look at that loneliness for the first time in a very intense way that you didn't before. And so in that sense, it's not a break from normal life. And we can use the pandemic you know, there's that great saying, never fail to take advantage of a good crisis, right? 
we, we should be using this pandemic as an opportunity for, to go monk, you might say, you know, in our homes and for that deeper spiritual reflection. What are the struggles that I'm having right now by virtue of being at home so much? And looking back, can I see that those same struggles existed in some way before the pandemic started? And then start trying to address them in that way. Circling back around to knowing the, the trees by the, the fruit that they bear. So what, 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 what fruit are you bearing during this time? What's been put right in front of your face uh, as a truth that has always existed, but now is more evident? Right. Well, I, I will speak for myself, and I think I speak for a lot of other people. I have often asked myself, uh, the, um, uh, the, the African-American's name, uh, I just forgot his name, the one who died with the knee on his neck, uh, George Floyd. You know, what struck me about that video is that that video came out about a month or two after the lockdown started, right? And the response to the, of the general public to that video was quite different to the response, you know, we've seen videos of this kind of thing in the past any number of times. And yet for some reason, it seems to have drawn a reaction from the public at large in a way that the other videos never did, okay? Um, and, you know, so Black Lives Matter gathers a momentum that it never could before. And, you know, in my opinion, and as the old timers used to say, my opinion and a nickel will get you a cup of coffee, right? But in my opinion, what explains the distinction is that precisely because of this lockdown, we've had to, we have the time to let things like that sink in, in a way that we never had to before, including myself. I, uh, I, I reacted to that video in a visceral way, a very heartfelt way, in a way that other, you know, things had not before. And I think it was because of the pandemic. I had nothing to do but to, to dwell on that and to think about it, you know. And so I would argue that that is kind of a blessing in disguise, if you will, of, uh, of the pandemic. The opportunity to go monk. I, I think yeah. that is, that is, a, that is a, a phrase that I'm going to take with me. So <laughs> anytime that, because actually, as, as, we, um, as we filmed this this morning, just on a personal note, I'm quarantined from my family. So I've got... Mm -hmm. I've got two girls that are uh, having kindergarten downstairs right now and my wife. And, uh, and so, and I'm, cause I had a close contact. I've been in this right. room right. <laughs> and, uh, and the opportunity, I have a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it helps, I'm very often, you know, uh, I live in a, the house that I live in has 16 Jesuits in it. And then there's three or four other big houses like that around the same complex. And so a number of times I've been sequestered in my bedroom for two weeks. So yeah. I, feel, I feel your pain. <laughs> now, I know that everybody uh, watching this and listening to this has been paying rapt attention, but they have also been distracted. They've been saying to themselves, man, that is a fantastic beard. And you know what? Father Bart's beard is pretty good too. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is two months in for me, but uh, talk about your bearded look just for fun. Like uh, what's that about? Well, How long I, do you rock Actually, it used to be a lot bigger. I uh, About 10 years ago, when I was at Regis University in Denver, it was about another two inches longer, and I had a very big handlebar mustache. And uh, 
because you know when you're working with university students, the more affectations you can have, the better, right? Anything that kind of grabs their attention. Absolutely. <laughs> and in Denver, it has the double. Uh, well, I guess in Boston too, you're going to keep a little warmer, I guess. With oh, the- yeah. uh, well, yeah, the hipster culture in Colorado, the kind of the big beard and the handlebar mustache. That's that's kind of de rigueur there. But uh, uh, and then I lost my courage after a while and shaved it off. But now I've repented of my sins and I'm putting it back on again. So. Welcome back. So how so how long? So I mentioned this is two months and it's slow growing for me, especially on the sides. How long until it's righteous? Do you think? What's your prediction? Well, yeah, I, I kind of go for the patriarch look, you know. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it about another inch, maybe another inch or two. Okay. All right. And 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 you mentioned uh, look of gravitas, right? Well, yeah. You got, you take me much more seriously this way. Um, and and making your own product. How did that start? Oh yeah. Well, I started it as a lark. Uh, I was gonna trying to make it as a fundraiser for the university where I was working. Uh, so like a beard balm, you know, it's like you can run it through your beard to keep it, you know, shaped and a little mustache wax, that kind of thing. I started it as a lark and now I'm kind of giving it out to friends and family and stuff like that. So I'll tell you what, when we start our St. Patrick Studio online store, I know who our beard <laughs> supplier is gonna be. It's gonna I would be, be all over that, all over that. Father Bart, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom this morning. Any any um, further thoughts or, or, or closing thoughts about what we can be doing uh, during this time of going monk? Oh, great. I'll, you know, I'll just say one thing. Uh, you know, you uh, the whole idea of hope, right? I would say don't think of hope as something that you look for. You're trying to find evidence of hope, okay? I think it's better to remember that hope is a choice that we make. We choose to look at each day through that lens, confident that God is always in control. Nothing is ever outside of God's control or or his hands. And so we are justified, fully justified to hope that things will get better. Um, And in that sense, tranquility is a piece, is a choice that we make, resting in the Lord. Father Bart, thank you so much. This has been The Conversation with St. Patrick's Studio. We will see you next time. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you.